This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Animal Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Emily Anthes, one of the channel's hosts. Today, we'll be talking to Emily Willingham about her new book, Fallacy, Life Lessons from the Animal Penis, which was published in September 2020 by Avery, an imprint of Penguin Publishing Group. Her next book, The Tailored Brain, will be published later this year. Emily, welcome to the show. Emily, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. You're welcome. (laughs) Could you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself and and your background? Yeah, sure. I am am a writer. I've been a writer for decades. I don't even want to say how many. Um, Got an English degree because literature is at the heart of everything that I love, Um, but also just so interested enough in science that I did go to graduate school in biology and earn a PhD. And my area of study was gonads. So I was already sort of in the general pelvic area at that point for a few years. And then after that, I did a postdoctoral fellowship at um, UCSF in San Francisco. And that one was in penises. It was in urology with a U, not an N. Unfortunately, everybody always gets excited because they think I'm talking about brains. (laughs) 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 But we we looked at how penises develop in mammals specifically. And then I, and all along through all that for about 30 years now, I've been a freelance writer. So I've been maintaining that career as best I can. And then I started writing books, which has been extremely fun for me. So what led you to write this book in particular? I mean, you mentioned some of your background. Um, Where did the idea come from? What made you think the time was right? So I had been, and I have an agent who's a wonderful human being, and I have been running, we have been going around and around on a proposal about the brain, which ended up being the brain book that I'm writing now that's supposed to come out later this year. In the meantime, I was driving around one day. I have three sons. <laughs> I was driving around like I often was before the pandemic with them all in the car. And it occurred to me what with the whole gonads and the penis research and everything else that, wait a second, I actually know quite a bit about penises. <laughs> um, wonder if anybody's ever written a book about those, like specifically, right? Uh, like kind of looking at them across the animal kingdom and so forth. 
and they hadn't. I was really surprised by that. So I sent my agent an email and I was like, hey, Emma, <laughs> what about a book about you know, So she called me in like 15 minutes. I pulled over into like a Kaiser parking lot and had this phone call <laughs> with her because it was apparently just, you know, sufficiently exciting to move forward with. And we did. And within a month I had, you know, some offers. It was an auction. It was super exciting. Wow, that's great. It sounds yeah. like you you found the right book for you. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. <laughs> so before we get too much further, I do want to note that you begin the book itself with some explanations about the language you use. And I was wondering if there was anything you wanted to say to listeners about that now. Yeah, I tried to be really careful with my language. I knew going in that when we talk about penises, we're not talking about their occurrence only on animals that make sperm or the smaller gametes in a lot of cases, that there are animals out there that make eggs that also have them. And I especially, I have two chapters that are human focused and I wanted to be extremely careful with my language around that. And so I sought to avoid um, using things interchangeably, like anatomy versus gender expression and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I also, I had sensitivity readers for those parts of my book, uh, just to kind of, you know, as a backstop against just really stepping in it. I was surprised to discover that it's actually kind of tricky to define what a penis even is. Could you tell us what makes a penis and why that question is actually kind of a difficult one? Yeah, I have a whole chapter that I devote to addressing that question. And it's it's almost like a continuum in a lot of ways. But part of the issue is, is that what we refer to as penises in the animal kingdom, they're not all made out of the same thing or even used in the same ways. And some of them have multiple other uses and beyond transferring gametes. So I, in that chapter, I take a look at animals that have them along a continuum of animals that maybe have something that's penis-like to animals that have maybe a penis, but they don't actually use it, which is kind of sometimes a bird kind of thing to do, to animals that have things that look like penises but aren't made out of the things we're used to <laughs> seeing with penises, and then who has them you know, which animals have them. And I think with some surprises that they're not all animals we would identify as male. Hmm. Interesting. And so the book is just full of examples of the sort of wild diversity of penises or penis-like organs. Do you have any favorite examples or can you give us a few examples of sort of how diverse they can be? Yeah, sure. I, I have to say up top that, you know, always my favorite will be human because, you know, <laughs> naturally, but in terms of just like, whoa, the human version, this is one of the life lessons from the books, the subtitle promises is that, you know, our version is not on the wow end of things when it comes to animal penises. And so when you look at them, you see penises that have hooks and barbs and spikes and two heads or four heads and like I said, they're not all used for just transferring gametes. They're used for like mobility and um, for even taste. And then in one case, in butterflies, some of them, they have photoreceptors on them so that they can detect light, you know? So this is, it gets pretty wild out there, especially compared to what we have for ourselves. Yeah, it's, it sounds, makes us sound pretty boring. In, in a way, but the thing is, is that, and I do try to emphasize this in the book, is that because we don't have like, spikes and spines and all kinds of other things on our penises, we can use them in sort of more, what should I say, inventive ways maybe than is allotted to an animal that has those features. Yeah. So you mentioned that 
you know, penises have uses that are not reproductive, and you mentioned a couple of them, but what sorts of things do animals use them for beyond reproduction? I think the most the most common one, that pattern that I saw is that there are legs that are also used to transfer sperm, right? Mm-hmm. And, and and some um, crustaceans and, and millipedes, I think it was another one, that they, they like, source up <laughs> they have four they develop like two pairs of legs and they source up the you know, semen with a one pair and then you know transfer it with a second pair but before they do that they actually do kind of a little test poke with the partner with mm. the original pair so that they i nobody knows you can't walk up to a millipede and go hey why did you do that but <laughs> you know <laughs> people infer from that that there maybe it's kind of like am i sure i have the right species because you know there are lots of species of millipedes i guess confusion is a possibility Yeah, that makes sense. So what do we know about the origins and the evolution of the penis? This is interesting. It kind of depends on which group of animals you're talking about. When it comes to arthropods, you know, they build, the penises are built out of lots of different things. Like um, some insects, you know, they're built out of plates on the thorax, on the abdomen. It's an extension through their when it comes to animals like us, you know, where we have an egg that is encased in, you know, something calcium, and there are a couple of sacs, the amnion and the chorion, um, there was some controversy about that for a really long time. Because if you look at the groups of animals in that, there are snakes and lizards that have penises that have two heads, and they have lots of, you know, bells and whistles on them, all the way up to primates to just have, you know, the one, <laughs> the one-headed version and so forth. And so there were some disputations about did the penis arise in animals like us more than once? Or mm-hmm. do we have some common ancestor that had a penis just, you know, and then that, that pattern for that transferred down the family tree through time. And that was resolved by a wonderful animal, the tuatara, which is in New Zealand. It's the only representative of its genus, just like we are. And it doesn't have a penis, actually. But thanks to some serendipitous timing of collection and museum lost and found and a lot of other things to the story, some people, a group in Florida, got a hold of some very old Tuatara embryo samples and got to see the just right timing to see that it does start to develop a penis but then it kind of erases it in development, kind of in an analogy, the way we sort of start a tail and then don't keep it. Hmm. And then, and it's the you know it's the oldest sort of our oldest version of animals in our group. And since it started one, that means something ancestral, even farther back, had the penis as well. So it evolved in one time, and then we did some plays on it over time. I see. Okay. Well, you write that genitalia are the best organs for illustrating evolution's power, which I thought was fascinating. Can you tell us a bit more about that? There are interesting studies about this. So the idea is that you know natural selection is a, a form of selection, right? It's an agent of evolution. There's a choice that's being made based on an environment and what fits in that environment and gives you a bit of an edge, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, then there's sexual selection, which is a a subset of that. And this is related to what happens on the copulatory ground, either before mating or when copulation is actually happening. And what you see, they did a study on this. They looked at, I think, like how 
like legs or something would change? Is there some body part unrelated to sex would change over time as lizards versus what was happening to the genitalia? And they found that the genitalia would change a lot faster. And what's happening is that that selective power is really strong right there where the rubber meets the road for reproduction. Because, mm-hmm. you know, if something is being selected, that choice is actually being made for the reproduction to pass it on to another generation. And so right there where genitalia meet is where you have this really powerful pull. So your book is called Fallacy, and so far we've been pretty focused on penises. Uh, (laughs) But female genitalia are also obviously part of the equation. So how much do we know about their evolution and diversity? I love this question, um, and it, it feeds right into what I was just talking about. So what you would expect to see if you have sexual selection happening, and there's a penis, right, and it has, let's say, a lot of features to it. Well, the question you ask is, well, what forces shaped it that way? Mm-hmm. And if you're talking about a colon response between genitalia, between a penis and a vagina, for example, then you would expect that these are adaptations to something happening perhaps with the vagina. But as my central chapter of the book, there's a bit of a Trojan horse here, um, shows, especially in animals like us, we haven't really looked at that as much as you might think, given the biological expectation that there's a colon response going on. So we have spent a lot of time looking at penises and much less time looking at vaginas. I could tell the duck story. Um, Please. (laughs) Everybody always knows about ducks and their notoriously ballistic corkscrew-shaped penises in some of the species. And I remember reading about these the first time in the 1990s, right? The duck penis. It was like an Argentine lake duck or something. It's a giant penis in nature. And the thing is, is if you see a penis like that, that's corkscrew shaped and it implies some kind of, you know, perhaps not fully consensual experience for one of the sex partners, you might think, well, let's look at the other side of things. What's happening in that vagina? That didn't happen. It didn't happen for, you know, until this century, in the 21st century, when naturally it was a woman, a scientist, (laughs) Patricia Brennan at Mount Holyoke, got a duck, got a female, looked at the vagina and lo and behold... There are adaptations in there that look like they're part of this conversation between the two sides of the copulating pair. The vaginas have these corkscrews in the other direction, and they have cul-de-sacs and dead ends and all these other things, kind of a, you know, obstacles to, to this sort of forced copulation. And we finally looked and found it. So is this part of what you talk about in the book and is referred to sometimes as the lock and key theory? It's not. It, it, so I, I do talk about the book how we used to teach lock and key. Like that right. was a, a version of species recognition almost. Like I talked about the millipede doing that test poke. Um, we, I used to put up pictures of like snake hemipenes, which is the two headed penis of snakes. And look at this thing and the shape of it. And this creates, you know, a match with the partner. And that's how they, you know, quote unquote, know species recognition and it maintains, you know, the species. Um, not so much so. <laughs> it's not actually probably really the case. Errors are made constantly. And what that really reflects instead, let me give an example of a macaque. This is one of the few primates where you really see some funny looking penis is the stump tailed macaque. And it has a penis that is shaped like an elongated spade. It's flattened and it's pointy at the tip, like a flattened spade. 
Mm -hmm. you look at that thing and you think, my God, what's going on in the macaque vagina? Or I do anyway. (laughs) (laughs) And it turns out that somebody did look at least once. And if you look in the macaque vagina, there is something kind of like stalactite like hanging from the roof of that vagina to the point that there's very little room for something to pass under it. And so what you're looking at there isn't, oh, the macaques are making sure they're the same species. I think the inference is more, there's some sexual tension here and some, you know, it's like choices being made, or there's this adaptation, the vagina that has driven this adaptation in the penis. Hmm. Interesting. So you can't go very long talking about penises, at least with humans, without talking about size. So what should human readers and listeners of your book know about penis size and the spectrum there? Yeah, we, t- we focus on that so much. And if you, so there have been studies putatively oriented to asking what, in this case, they, they just substitute women in, right, mm-hmm. as interacting with penises. And they don't really ever actually ask and answer that question in the best way. When they do survey women who have sex with men, women with vaginas who have sex with men with penises, they find that, you know, they, the length and even the width are not necessarily that important. The factors that make sex great have to do with using other things, including your brain, to, you know, show your intimacy, be inventive and creative, show your interest, uh, get better at what you're doing with your partner and that kind of thing. And it goes well beyond penis size or width. Mm -hmm. And what about in terms of the diversity we see in the animal kingdom (laughs) in terms of size? That's another, that was another life lesson is, is that when you line ours up, it's just people try to make arguments, even just among primates, that the human penis is somehow special in terms of its size or even features that it has, which is just not. And one of the big, the foremost experts on this, Alan Dixon has said, you know, it's basically a 22 way tie. <laughs> There's not, <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't stand out by all these metrics people try to use. And it almost doesn't, matter because we have so many options for having enjoyment in our sexual experiences and they're not available to most other animals. Mm -hmm. So I want to move on from talking about the biology of the penis to the symbolism of the penis, which you also talk about. How did it become this symbol of power and fertility and sort of how has that symbolism changed throughout time? So I, in in the last chapter of the book, I do, it is necessarily brief, I think, look at one way that this unspooled. And there are associations in a lot of cultures of the penis with um, fertility. And what you see is that as humans started to settle in one place with domestication and agriculture and that kind of thing, you see penises or or entities with large ones being set up as guardians of things like fields and, and to assure fertility of the field. I think that for at least some cultures, you know, there's an obvious association between what comes out of a penis and, and you know, successful reproduction and, and abundance. So, for example, 
the Egyptians, there's a god, Men, who's depicted as having, he's got a flail in one hand, which is used to harvest grain, but he also has an erect penis. It's, it's um, parallel to the ground and quite large for his size. <laughs> you can see that, you know, there's an emphasis there. And the other thing about him is that his his plant associated with him was lettuce and not like, you know, iceberg, but the long, an elongated kind of phallus-shaped form of lettuce that when you crack it open, there's white fluid that comes out. Mm-hmm. So those associations, they're pretty tight across a lot of cultures. And you see the Romans, um, the the god uh, Priapus began as a scarecrow type figure and before being distilled into just basically just a permanent phallus. <laughs> and mm-hmm. also the Romans had... Um, what are called fascinums, or I'm not a Latin person, so but you know, we get the word fascinate from these, and they huh. were amulets that had a phallus on it with wings and that kind of thing that even children would wear because they were protective against forces of evil. Mm-hmm. I would infer from that that in addition to just that obvious source of fertility, that you know people who make sperm tend to also have greater physical strength and so with those associations you get this 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 kind of direct line of protection and fertility and power Mm -hmm. so it's clearly still something the penis is clearly still something that remains a draw both for scientists and for journalists and for the public what do you think the not necessarily the appeal is, but why so much attention on the penis? Why so much interest in it? You know, after all of that sort of ancient uh, um, usage of it, that was in almost like a lot of really positive ways, you know, it's just positive protection and all these other things. It kind of got torqued. And so one of the things I talk about in the last chapter is the hammer of witches and this guy Kramer, who was largely responsible for writing it. And just this, it's overall kind of, it's a, it's a good stand in for this general fear that people were going to steal penises from you, which is something that still occurs in the world today, that people feel like someone has just stolen their penis from them as a result of witchcraft. And so there was this kind of switch to, um, Uh, kind of sexism related to the penis and kind of setting the penis up as being really powerful, but also vulnerable to the wiles of witches, which eventually just became associated strictly with being a woman. (laughs) Right. And then you get to Freud who sets everybody up as being a penis. And then the Freudian analysts who like, if you read their papers, you just search the word phallus in their papers. It's just in there like hundreds of times, you know, and everything is a phallus. Everybody wants to be one and eat one. And I don't know, it just gets nuts. And you start to replace human beings with this single feature. And that's just pretty, that gets pretty toxic at that point, right? At least I I seek to trace in that last chapter a line from that to our attitudes about it today. So you see a guy standing in a Starbucks and he has an AR-15 and people who comment on it will say, small dick energy. They immediately go to this man is standing here exhibiting this human behavior because he's got a tiny penis. Nobody knows how big that man's penis is. We have no idea. But what we do know is that there are social pressures, and I'm not excusing this a person's behavior in this situation by any stretch, but we would do well to take a step back 
and look at the kinds of pressures about impossible masculinity that will motivate behaviors like that, performative behaviors like that, and that also on the other side of it will motivate people to immediately reduce that person to a body part. Yeah, that's one of the things I love about the book is it's about the penis, but at the same time, it's this call to what you write as decenter the penis. And so I love that you talk about doing that both culturally, but also for researchers to do that as well. Um, and you talk about some of the problems with evolutionary psychology, which has maybe centered the penis a bit too much. Can you tell us a little more about that and what some of the problems with, with some of those studies are? Yeah, I can I can mention one study, and it, it's not like all of evolutionary psychology is just the worst, but these studies that purport to say, well, here, we want to look at what women want, and by doing that, we're going to look at penises instead of, you know, all these other things that have to do with what women want, you know, sexually. Um, so one of the studies involved a very small number of people, some of whom had never had any experience with a penis at all, some of whom, you know, identified themselves as lesbians or asexual, and um, they went through a room and held or felt and looked at a set of a few dozen 3D plastic printed bright blue penises. They just dildos, right? <laughs> Basically. And then later were asked to recall the relative size of these, I think to the size of a dollar bill that was sort of set up as like an average erect penis size. There was nothing about this study that was naturalistic at all. And in the end, the, the, the people participating in the study, I think, were said to have underestimated the size in general. And then the way the study got flipped was basically they were kind of being blamed for that. And because they underestimated, this makes people with penises feel bad about themselves. <laughs> it was really, <laughs> and I'm just thinking, this not, not one aspect of this is the way <laughs> to go about looking at what people what women, if you're going to ask a question about what women want, that's not how to go about it. Yeah, well, that, that leads perfectly into my next question, which is like, what is a more thoughtful way to try to answer some of these questions? What do those studies look like? Uh, there are a few. There were, uh, one was done in the Middle East and because of, you know, sort of cultural mores there and, and, and constraints, it was a survey that was done anonymously and they asked women about their experiences with their husbands. And while they did ask the question of, you know, what do you think, do you, do you want a penis to be long or thick and that kind of stuff, that wasn't foregrounded as much as they just wanted more time. And they were concerned also, and they surveyed men as well, the, the mutual concern between them was sort of being like ejaculating too soon and not um, maintaining an erection long enough for the woman to also gain pleasure from it. And that tells us so much, I think, about being able to build in intimacy and trust and finding ways to make sure both partners or however many partners you have experience pleasure that don't have to do with the size or the width of the penis or even necessarily whether it stays erect, quote unquote, long enough. I think mm -hmm. there's so much to be gleaned from that. Mm -hmm. And there were other studies that ask women what works for best for them. And I think I mentioned this already, but, you know, just things that don't have to do with the penis, like a longer term relationship, you know, more uh, 
um, building of the intimacy, learning more about what to do, what works, what doesn't, and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Well, so you also give some interesting examples of societies and cultures that seem to be doing a better job of recognizing that we are not our genitalia um, than others. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I. it's... This is a, a, the one in the Dominican Republic is that <laughs> the one, this study, they, there was a group of urologists and they learned about a cluster in the Dominican Republic of children who were raised as girls. But then when they um, became pubertal, they started a transition and started to develop features that were more testosterone driven, like mm-hmm. broad shoulders and they, they, um, they, would start to grow penises and things like that and get, I think, hair on their faces, things like that. And what was going on there was developmentally, there's another hormone, dihydrotestosterone, that an enzyme has to make for an embryo to develop the structures of the penis. If the enzyme is lacking, that doesn't get made. Mm-hmm. But at puberty, the active hormone is testosterone, and that acts on all these other features, and then you start to get these features that are related to that, right? So th- because there was there were you know a sufficient proportion of children in this area were having this experience, the reaction of the population was not as negative as maybe you might expect. I don't know what people expect anymore, but they were kind of more accepting of it than rejecting of it. And it was not all, you know, a hundred percent kumbaya by any stretch, but there was definitely sort of this accommodation for it. And even I think in some cases, sort of a celebration of a trend, you know, moving from being raised as a girl to now becoming, going through puberty and having these features associated with being a man and things like that. Hmm. Well, so that goes right along with what you are sort of calling for in the book, which is along with decentering the penis, centering the brain. So what do you mean by that? And, and how do we do it? So as, the, as I hope the book illustrates, our penis is not much to write home about. I mean, <laughs> we, we have a lot, right, we have a lot of fun with it. But you know, you compare it to like a seed beetle and you're just, you know, just we got nothing on the seed beetle, which has jaws, you know, <laughs> and things like that. But and so I, I want to contextualize it and decenter it in that way. But in the last chapter, I try to make the point that the one thing that does we do stand out um, as a species with, and that we do have a lot of bells and whistles that other species do not, is our brain and our our expression, our behavioral expression is just off the hook compared to what we see in other species and. Instead of suppressing that, instead of saying, no, you were born with this body part here, ergo, you must behave this way, I think we should embrace and celebrate this variety and diversity of brains that the humans are capable of having. Yeah, that's a really nice way to put it. So are there other big fallacies about the penis uh, that we haven't covered yet or haven't been punctured that, that you would like to? There was one point, another point I tried to make in the book, and that is just to try to avoid singular examples to sort of explain away or rationalize behavior that in the human context is not appropriate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's something that I have 
you can see that, you know, in lots of places. Um, I mentioned Jeffrey Epstein for one, um, you know, who was wanted to go build his ranch somewhere in the Southwest and, you know, taken a bunch of underage girls and I'm assuming rape them. And then, um, like his seed or something. I can't remember. He had just like, there was a plan related to all of that and rationalizing it that this was biologically defensible because quote unquote, this is what males are supposed to do. You know, and you could take any other species and go, look, that species is doing the thing. You know what? That doesn't mean that our species should, could, or ought to be able to do the thing. We're separate species. We're the only representative of our genus and we're the only example we have for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is always a, a really useful reminder. The subtitle of the book is, as you mentioned, Life Lessons from the Animal Penis. Are there other big life lessons you want people to take away from the book or messages, take home messages? Yeah, I would say that the other one is outside of just, you know, it's really not that wow, but it is a lot of fun. And we can't use what other animals do as an excuse for what we do. And can we please focus on our brains some more? But the <laughs> other one, the other one is that when people try to talk about gender and humans, there, you know, one of the things that, for example, people who are anti transgender people, you know, who, who, get all head up about transgender people, which I mean, just, you know, go find a life. Um, one of the things that they do is they make these, this appeal to biology, this, thing, this biological essentialism. Well, if you look at these other animals, they were just males and they're females and that's it. Boom. And the males have the penis, you know? I'm, and the thing is, is that that's an affront to biology. It's not true. Hmm. And so another lesson is that we may like to try to just dump things into two buckets and walk away, but that's not how nature does things. And there are plenty of examples and among species where the animal that makes the oocytes, that makes the eggs, is the one that has the structure that we would refer to as a penis. And that just turns all of that upside down. If you want to get essentialist about things, that means this can just get that. Of course, you know, just countless probably species they have both. <laughs> so, you know, let's get over the two bucket thing and stop, you know, making these false and ascientific appeals to biology just mm-hmm. to prop up bigotry. So was there anything that you learned that really surprised you while you were researching or reporting this book? A couple of things. One was just sort of like haha, and the other one was more serious. Um, you know, the central chapter on vaginas. I, I knew going in that maybe we hadn't looked at them quite as much as the penis, but I had no idea that it, that it was as limited as it was, especially for vertebrates and deliberate. Like I was finding papers where they would, I you know, loving detail about, you know, the penis of a species and they'd be like, eh, you know, the vagina is probably not much there. <laughs> you're just like, what could you look? <laughs> maybe. So I was a little, I mean, I thought I was coming to that pretty jaded, but I was still kind of surprised at the magnitude of that. And then the other one that's sort of more fun was just the butterflies with those dang photoreceptors. I mean, they could see what, you know, it's like detecting light with your genitalia is kind of bananas. You could see with your vulva would just be, I just, yeah, that one surprised me. Yeah, entomologists probably knew all that already, but I'm a vertebrate person. I was like, whoa. (laughs) 
Yeah, I think you said somewhere that if you're interested in genitalia, uh, you could do worse than to be an entomologist. Yes, they, um, among other things, you know, it's because a lot of those animals look so much alike. One of the ways that they try to distinguish them is looking at the genitalia, because like I said, if anything is going to be showing adaptations faster than anything else, it's going to be there where that rubber hits the road. So they do spend a lot of time looking at them and classifying with those using those features, among others. So I'm curious what kinds of responses you've gotten to the book. I know that you're a woman online, and I am also a woman online, and I can imagine writing about some of these topics and being online generate all sorts of responses. So what has the reception been like? Um, It's interesting. I think that it's not so much divided by... people who identify as a man or as a woman as it is by their perspective. So I intended this book to be feminist and people who are anti-feminist don't receive it as well as people who view themselves as feminist. There have been definitely some men who have responded basically to the, you know, with what the hell are you doing writing a book about penises? You're a woman. (laughs) And you should be writing a book about vaginas, to which I can respond, well, I kind of did. <laughs> you know? Right. Right. Um, and, oh, this has a feminist agenda. <laughs> and one of them just called the title of the review, I think, was Feminist Cry. <laughs> <laughs> which was a hoot. <laughs> I, I hope you're framing that one. I'm thinking about it. I don't know. That one really made me laugh. It was just funny. They get, they're very, you know, they're unhappy about that. And then there was a big thing that blew up a little bit on Twitter. There was a guy who created a fake paper called the conceptual penis. It appears to be the only thing he's ever done with his life. And he learned about the book somewhere. I don't remember and tweeted it. And a bunch of his followers came in and blew up pictures of me and tried to make fun of how I look. And the weird thing was though, is that they were making fun of that. I had pronouns in my Twitter bio, Mm -hmm. but then they also said, you look like a man. How do I know that you aren't or something like that? (laughs) And I was like, well, there are pronouns in my Twitter bio. (laughs) Maybe that would help you out. (laughs) Sorry. Yeah. Just yeah. a real, real disconnect there, but anyway. Well, so I can't let you go without asking you briefly about the cover, which I love. Um, and so if there are people listening who might not have it in front of them, can you describe what the cover looks like? I can indeed. Um, it is a there's a beautiful. I think I actually kind of think it's really pretty, <laughs> but there's a beautiful kind of cream colored background, and then this rather striking and I got to say, you know, purposely phallic looking squid with lovely blue eyes just staring right at you through the cover, and it says fallacy in black across it. Life lessons from the animal penis. The squid is pink. I should mention that, right? It's very pink. I remember you asking on Twitter for people to guess what was on the cover. Were there other options that you considered or was this always the concept from the beginning? Um, There were four concepts that were considered. Actually, one of them was just that, except that the the rest of the cover was pink as well. And I'm, I got, I got to confess, I'm not actually the biggest fan of pink. So I I was no to that one and a couple of others. um, But this one really, it just, it was hands down the winner. (laughs) It's wonderful. 
Thank you. So what's next for you? You mentioned your forthcoming book. Can you preview it a little bit? Tell us what we can expect. Yeah, I can. It's got a really long title that they, the the subtitle, but the, the main title of it is The Tailored Brain. And what I am doing with this book is it's supposed to be sort of brain self-help for, um, well, my editor says for smart people, I just think, you know, thoughtful people, um, taking the measure of your brain and deciding what you, why would you think you needed to do something for it? And then what evidence-based things are out there to do something, but not stopping there. The through line of the book is that our brains don't end just behind our foreheads. We are all together. We're social species. Our brains are interconnected. Most of these kinds of things, they focus on just what you can do for yourself. How can you tailor your own brain? What can you do to make yourself smarter, have a better memory, more focused, all this other stuff. And in this book, I spend a lot of time on what we can do for other people's brains, for the collective Um, as well as for ourselves, to basically lift all boats. Well, it sounds like a great follow-up to a book that's asking us to try to center the brain more. Yes, (laughs) I hope so. Yeah, I I guess I'm going to eventually, maybe I'll tour through all of the organs of the body. You know, maybe I'll do the heart next or something. Well, we'll stay tuned and we'll have you back on. (laughs) I would look forward to that, Emily. Well, thanks so much for talking with us today. It was it was great chatting with you. Thanks for having me. It was great to talk with you as well.